0: This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we
1: can do, and
2: everything can change.
3: Welcome to the Climate Action Radio Show, which can be heard on community radio 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. My name is Vivian Langford and salut Babette. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present and pay tribute to the decades-long legacy of Aboriginal fights for land rights and against the destructive mining projects that are fueling climate change. In particular, we acknowledge the Wangan and Jagalingu cultural custodians and their ongoing opposition to coal mining on their lands in central Queensland, and to the Gomeroy traditional custodians continuing opposition to coal and gas on their land in New South Wales. It is vital at this late stage in history that we all learn to care for country. It will always be Aboriginal land, and now is our time to all stand up for and protect it. This is episode two in Good for the Gong, It's about the proposed Illawarra wind project, about 10 kilometres offshore from Wollongong. And this episode is called Building the Future. We will go to the New South Wales Parliament where Greens MP Abigail Boyd wants to keep our energy in public hands. We all remember the neoliberal privatisations around the world, but now the trend is going the other way. Denmark leads the world in wind power with publicly owned energy. In Germany, the Munich municipality provides the energy and by next year, it will be 100% renewable. In the Netherlands, it's illegal to privatize water or energy networks. And as we move from a centralized energy system with a few big power stations to a different model with energy provided from suburban rooftops, wind farms 10 kilometers off the coast and huge solar farms inland with batteries and pumped hydro storage, maybe it's time for this to be publicly owned and regulated. Then we'll hear from Tim Buckley from IEFA. This is courtesy of Sean O'Shaughnessy and the Environmental As Anything podcast. He contacted me last year and he's given permission for us to use parts of his very long and interesting interviews. Links in the show notes. Tim says...
2: And so that means we can play a world-leading role helping countries like China, Japan, Korea, India decarbonise their economy. We can help them, and when we're helping them, we're helping ourselves because we're building the industries of the future, just like China's doing. And that's that's a big investment, and that is a once-in-a-generation opportunity for chalmers to leave a massive positive economic legacy for our country. We've been a parasite on the world for for decades as the third largest fossil fuel exporter of the world. We're, We're one of the drug pushers. We've got to become one of the solution providers at world scale.
3: Now, here's Abigail Boyd. Keep our energy in public hands is the slogan. And we have Abigail Boyd here from the Greens in New South Wales Parliament. So welcome, Abigail. Our focus today is on the Illawarra offshore wind project. And a lot of people I met have said how much easier it would be if this wind farm, huge, you know, I think four gigawatts of energy will supply, if it was publicly owned. It would be easier. But this was off the record, they told me that, as though the Australian public would not be ready a nationalization of the energy sector or even region by region you know national uh, public ownership of projects are they right are we ready for it
0: I'd like to think that uh we are ready um, to take public ownership back of our essential uh, energy assets I understand the fear I understand and I think part of part of what we're seeing in this space is a going back to fighting the very sort of extremes and basics rather than dealing now with the natural sort of next step in progress. And what I mean by that is, you know, we have people actively um, arguing against offshore wind and, um, you know, we see this real frenzied, misinformed approach to something that I think most of us thought we'd taken for granted now, that we were definitely, you know, sort of moving to renewables which then stops us because we're fighting that we're not able to talk about the natural next step in, you know, so what happens with with our energy assets. And to me, that is nationalization. And I think that um, the public are ready for that because they've seen the disasters that occur when you privatize um, our energy assets, you know, even things like privatizing the banks. Um, So I think there is a real appetite among more people in the population than we've had before for nationalising those essential um, assets and energy is just the most obvious of them.
3: Yes, in New South Wales Parliament, I I wasn't there but I I saw an interchange with you, Uh, the Energy Minister Penny Sharp, she said in Parliament every part of the renewable energy transition is made harder by the ridiculous privatisation that happened. We are now going from a few baseload power stations to many hundreds of different sources of power. Now do you think this means the New South Wales government would like to increase the share of publicly owned energy?
0: I'd love it if they did. I think there's a few things when we look at those privatisations there was a, a few bad mistakes and if we just don't pick those. So um, the first one was obviously when you privatise an essential public service particularly when it is you know, the entire sort of network gets privatised. You end up in uh, giving a profit stream to a bunch of corporations who then need to skim profit off the top, which will, you know, all the other things being equal, push up uh, the electricity prices. But what they also did in those transactions, and we uncovered, is that those privatisation transactions for the uh, all of those coal-fired power stations were done while still retaining the liability for the state, so those contracts make it clear that when those um all of those coal-fired power stations go offline, there is a huge amount of legacy contamination uh, that the government will then be responsible for. So we've taken, we we kept those liabilities, but we lost control over the asset. Um, and so we lost control over being able to reduce those liabilities. So there was that mistake. And then the third mistake we made was introducing a low regulation environment and being too scared um, to regulate these uh, corporations in the way that the public expected, because we had this constant threat that if we were to increase regulation, then it would result in higher electricity prices. And so because of that, we have taken all of those external costs of, of running those um, power stations and socialized them to the environment and the community in the form of health costs and and costs to the environment and failed to claw that back from the from these corporate operators so i think when we talk about not repeating the mistakes of the past it's not just that privatization aspect where corporations are making profit from these assets but it's also that failure to regulate them properly and to take a piece of of that profit and put it back into the community. I haven't seen that understanding from the Labor government of exactly what the privatization mistakes were and the way it's played out in a way that gives me comfort that they're not going to repeat those mistakes again.
3: This is such a big transition and meanwhile, workers are being left to hang up, to dry in the just transition. We've been bleating this word, just transition, for years and years. And uh now, just recently, Wollongong Russell Vale Colliery was closed down after several underground fires, so it was unsafe, and the workers would just send an email that they were on the scrap heap and I want to know how would a publicly owned energy sector deal with cases like that in redeploying and retraining? I know there's overseas example; we talked to people from Germany, but mm-hmm. can you just speak to that because I know it doesn't have to be this way mm
0: taking back control of once you've got if not direct ownership and control through ownership but control through very strict regulation and you're able to look at the network as a whole that's when you can most not just effectively but fairly transition the network so as penny sharp very sensibly said in parliament when asked her my question um, she talked about how we, you know, at the moment we have these centralised, sort of, I guess, you know, certain communities that are reliant on coal and coal-fired power. And the renewables we're building are in very different places. A transition authority or a well-planned transition would bring those things together. Uh, and I think it's particularly, there are certain areas like Newcastle and Wollongong where you have a, you know, perhaps a, an easier job of it because we can have things like offshore wind and um, we can employ those same workers. But what we have here is not just a problem with these assets being not under our control. We also have governments that aren't willing to lead that transition. Yeah. Um, and so, as you say, overseas, we've seen communities coming together, working out what they need in their community that would, um, you know, best sort of set them up for the future. And then the government assisting to actually, you know, finance and resource that um, that transition for workers and communities. What's really frustrating for us, we, we went to the last election with a a plan for a, a state transition authority. Underneath that, we would have, um, you know, sort of region by region transition authorities. The Labour government, you know, when they were campaigning, they said that they were on board. Uh, they also wanted that, that they'd heard um, the calls for it. But then, when we saw them actually budget for this and implement this promise, it turns out that they they sort of view a transition authority as being more like a job agency. Um, they've just put 5.2 million dollars into transition authorities for the whole of the state over four years. This is nothing compared to what we know they need to do. Um, if you look at La Trobe, if you look overseas, we need a you know a real commitment from this Labour government to facilitate that transition. Um, And that's just good economic management, to to take your workforce uh, and allow them to easily transition into new jobs uh, once old, unsustainable industries are shutting so that you can have them move into into new industries. So, again, it's a failure of leadership um, as well as direct ownership.
2: Yeah. My name Daryl Best. I worked all my working career in coal mines. I am now passionate about a transition to renewables and about saving our planet. And you are listening to the Climate Action Radio Show on community radio. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful thing.
3: Well, let's talk about the international perspective. I know you've got some experience there. And just in this recent COP28, the first time they mentioned a just transition work program. Now, I haven't seen the details about that. And they said they weren't going to discuss the finance till next year, but it was launched. And South Africa's environment minister called Barbara Creasy, she said, the current global financial system is not designed to respond. We need 85 billion per year, for example, to transition just the workers. What do you see on the global level in this? Is there an appetite for this? You know, we struggled to even give loss and damage to people. But for this workers' transition, there's a lot of people who are workers and who are
0: unionised
3: and who know about justice.
0: I, I think one of the, the big issues is that we have governments around the world that are very focused on the short term. And when and you see this, if you were to take a 10-, 20-year uh, approach, any sensible Um, government that actually wanted to manage um, its economy in the long run would be looking at whatever the industry is. I don't, you know, it doesn't really matter if it's, if it's something like fossil fuels or something, you know, even, you know, I talk a lot about transitioning away from things like greyhound racing. I mean, there's, there's lots of unsustainable industries that have lost their social licence or are no longer required, whatever it happens to be, and you also have new industries coming up in your economy, it is just, you know, Economics 101 to take people who are coming out and losing jobs in one industry and putting them into another if you want your economy to work well. And that involves training, that involves, you know, making sure that the Uh, community infrastructure stays within communities as they're transitioning so things like their post offices their schools whatever it happens to be so if you if you take that approach where a government is actually responsible for the the shape of the industries that that are operating always talking in the short run um and not considering what we save in the long run so yes there is a cost right now but Mm -hmm. that cost when you compare it to the cost of of not transitioning those workers and just leaving, you know, and having to clean up the mess later on, um, it's a lot cheaper to do it now. And so I think that the debate kind of gets a bit skewed. So we need to think about, yeah, what is, what is government actually for? And I, I believe it's, yeah, to help shepherd industries, you know, or people from one industry to another.
3: The Green Party policy is for all new utility-scale generation storage. I was glad to see this when I looked it up. I thought it was just you, you know, putting this (laughs) spin. The whole party (laughs) believes this, that big-scale stuff should be in public hands, and especially because it's such a new thing. As Penny Sharp said, you've gone from a handful of, you know, centralised utilities now to this diversified it's a very different model so if you could control it from the top at least with the regulations itself to it me as if it will be easier but there are precedents for this in europe in denmark germany germany in hamburg the people voted to um mm. they put out like a little local referendum to buy back the energy grid and they did it so there was no friction but i wonder how is private capital here responding And how can that transition be managed without them sabotaging it?
0: It's an excellent question. (laughs) Um, I think because at the moment we have, so, you know, the Labor government talk about I think they've got $1 billion that they've put in the budget and they talk about that being sort of a public investment in things like batteries and stuff. But really it's a co-investment model and it's about giving a, you know, it's sort of underwriting, financing, um, giving subsidies to private investors i don't know why we don't take that money and put it directly uh into creating uh, you know constructing these things ourselves i find it this this idea that we have to partner all the time with private industry i think is you know, one of the i guess one of the things that's been ingrained through the last 30 years of, mm. of the type of economic system we have but private industry There is a place for private industry to come in alongside government. I think that because of the speed at which we have to move now to transition us away from fossil fuels, we can't, unfortunately, have this perfect uh, situation where everything would be publicly owned. But we must have enough within our control so that the mistakes that we've seen in the past don't happen again. So at the very least, we need to... Have very strong regulation about, you know, sort of what happens with with profits and what happens with um, the the sort of the long term ownership of these assets.
3: Remember, we had the backlash against the mining tax, and these people can orchestrate that as the people in Wollongong have found just against one wind farm. There's this orchestrated hostile response. Mm. So how do you preempt that? I mean, I gave you the example of the hand yeah. and put it out to a vote: Are we going to buy it back? And and make it public or not.
0: Yeah, I think um, community benefit schemes are really a useful part of getting community back on board with these ideas. So Gullan Range had an onshore wind farm um, and from the very beginning they devised a community benefit scheme where a certain amount of money from the date of construction not from uh, when it was actually operating but from the the date that it was first started construction they were giving a certain amount of money um, to the local community for them to use through their local council and we took the figures from that Gullen range, which is, you know, obviously it's onshore, its a, the capacity is much smaller than what we're looking at in the Illawarra with the offshore. But if you scaled that up, even the most conservative estimate, you'd be taking in $2 million a year from the offshore wind um, farm that could be used through the Illawarra for, you know, community benefit programs such as, for example, um, electrification, um, making... Um, homes you know retrofitting homes to make them more energy um, okay. efficient that sort of thing and so when when you begin to look at working your know, government working with industry working with community so that everybody benefits I think that's one of the ways that we make sure that we don't do the sort of the mistakes of the past again where we're actually and that's that's how I think we have to bring people on board
3: yeah fantastic well look in summary We're talking to Abigail Boyd from the New South Wales Parliament. Abigail, what would you like to tell our climate active listeners? I'm sure we have a lot of listeners here who actually go out and take action a lot of the time. Uh, And a lot of it's against coal, oil and gas, but we have to be more lobbying for the vision that you started to outline there. Um, What would you like to tell them, especially in those communities where the transition will most affect them in their jobs and in their lives?
0: Um, I guess two things. One, the misinformation campaign um from those who are, you know claiming that suddenly that they're um interested in the environment and the whales or whatever have you from the um the anti-wind farm brigade. Um, there's so much in- misinformation coming from those people. Um, and so what I would love is anybody who has the time and energy to go out and actually speak to, neighbours, speak to people about what the real situation is when it comes to wind farms and try and, you know, actually get involved with going around and door knocking. I know there's a, a bunch of people in the Illawarra who are, who are already leading those sorts of projects, because we can only counter that with direct information to people. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is to really not accept that what the Labour government is offering is the best that we can get Authorities with teeth who can actually help lead the transition to make sure that no workers are left behind. It is absolutely vital that they take that seriously. And at the moment, their reliance on the private companies and the market to achieve that for us is going to lead to to people losing their jobs unnecessarily. So yeah, push Labour to do a bit better.
3: Right here. Thanks very much.
0: Thank you. This summer, wildlife are feeling the heat of climate change. Wildlife becomes stressed and unwell in hot weather and every summer Wildlife Victoria receives tens of thousands of calls for wildlife assistance. You can make a positive difference to the future of wildlife by donating to Wildlife Victoria. Your donation will help us rescue and care for heat affected native animals. The future of wildlife is in your hands. Donate to Wildlife Victoria at wildlifevictoria.org.au Wildlife Victoria is a 3CR supporter.
3: Meanwhile, on the first day of federal parliament, Barnaby Joyce encouraged a reckless renewables rally to see themselves as an army, and the Guardian headline was, first lockdown, then the voice, now renewables, as people's anxieties were stoked up against the government. As John Grimes, CEO of the Smart Energy Council and a friend of this program, said, quote, It's outrageous that David Littleproud is calling for a moratorium on renewables, putting more than 60,000 Australian renewable energy jobs under threat. We're going to do more on this next week, but just to give you a taste, here is Andrew Hastie, Liberal MP for Mandurah in Western Australia.
2: I'm Andrew Hastie and I'm here outside Parliament House in Canberra, and behind me is the rally against reckless renewables. Thousands of Australians across this country are waking up to the environmental and economic costs of wind and solar farms. And we have it coming to us in Mandurah very soon. There is a plan for a massive offshore wind project stretching from Rockingham all the way to Dunsborough. It will pose great risk to our fisheries, our environment, and it will impose greater costs on working families and businesses in our area. I need your help to stand against this movement And so please stay tuned for more on this subject.
3: If you're a fan of this show, don't let these voices control the narrative. It's Katie, you can do. Now here's a song by Xavier Rudd. It's called Stony Creek, and it won the 2023 Environmental Music Prize. Part of Tim Buckley from the Institute for Energy, Economics and Financial Analysis talking to Sean O'Shaughnessy on environmental as anything.
2: So, Chris Bowen, Minister Bowen, has um, introduced a turbo, or he's turbocharged a policy that he introduced about six to 12 months ago and increased its reach by fourfold. That is working in partnership with the state governments to deliver on the joint ambitions for lower cost, zero emissions, higher reliability energy systems. And so the federal government's stepping up and saying, well, we will put the federal government balance sheet on the line to underwrite the minimum revenue to new successful bidders for new capacity. So it's not guaranteeing their revenue entirely, but it's giving them a minimum revenue. And so it really de-risks these projects, which then means that developers in Australia and global developers can come here and deploy tens of billions or even hundreds of billions of dollars knowing that at least they will even in a bad season get enough money to pay the interest so that they can actually crowd in debt finance as well and that increased um, certainty for investors dramatically lowers the cost of energy for everyone because we're moving from a system which used to be totally reliant on commodities so methane gas and coal are commodities and they have Cycles, and we just saw the coal price go up tenfold. Now it's come down 70% in the last 18 months. The LNG price went up tenfold. Now all of that is fine when it's low, apart from the pollution. But it is something that the consumer can't manage because it's it's a it's a commodity. And so when we move to financial resources like wind and solar, they're utility assets with absolute price certainty. And so they not only lower the price for everyone, but they actually reduce the volatility. And so households, one of my big forecasts, it's an easy one, I think, for July next year, is that everyone in the east coast of Australia, other than the ACT, will get a double-digit reduction in their retail electricity prices from the 1st of July if they're on the default market offer. So Mm -hmm. double digit, and that's after 20 to 30% per annum increases for the last two years. So we're going to start seeing the success of what AEMO is talking about, and that is lower prices, and and there is scope for that to continue to go down a bit more subsequent 12 months. Electricity is priced in Australia on a 12-month basis, Mm -hmm. so there's a bit of a delay, but we know what's happening in the wholesale market. Prices are down 50% year-on-year, year-to-date. And so some of the energy crisis is dissipating and consumers have at least some relief on the
4: horizon. Well, that's good news. Uh, everyone will be glad to hear that. Um, and then, of course, you've uh, moved on to the landmark New South Wales Net Zero Act yeah. and uh, and also Queensland having matched uh, New South Wales' uh, ambitions, I hear.
2: Yeah, it would matched or trumped. Come on, Premier Miles. Like, that is... On his first, so the Queensland, the new Queensland Premier on his first day yesterday announced that Queensland will introduce legislation for a 75% emissions reduction target by 2035. He's clearly been talking to uh, Zali Stegall, the federal uh, member of parliament for Warringah, and Zali's been pushing 75 by 35 for the last two years. And uh, the first day in as Premier of Queensland. Jeremy Miles has introduced a um, 75% emissions reduction target. So and a f- lot 5% of 5%
4: that... better than New South Wales' effort.
2: Yeah, and 5% doesn't sound much, but when we're talking about it, that's only 12 years from now, and that is absolutely moving to align, you know, almost in alignment with what the climate scientists have been saying for 40 years, but... When you're starting literally uh you've been slowly dragging yourself crawling in the right direction to now get up and sprint it's what the science says we need it's what the finance is saying we can do and it'll actually have lasting benefits for everyone um on the planet um and for queensland and for australia so yeah but not to take um total thunder away from new south wales new south wales has already now passed legislation so New South Wales had, um, or has, as of today, the first and most ambitious act of Parliament for a 50% emissions reduction by 2030 for New South Wales and then accelerating to a 70% reduction by 2035. So until Queensland actually legislates, New South Wales leading the race, and now we've just got to actually see some policies to actually deliver that mm. uh, legislated requirement. But I, do, I will give them a hat tip. I've been pretty harsh on the uh, Premier Mins and uh, I still think we've got a long way to go to drag ourselves out of the coal age. I think we're still way too tied to the coal industry in New South Wales. It, but uh, we're moving in the right direction. We're working on biodiversity. We're working on the climate science, and we're starting to get some renewables installed. So uh, like we're building one of the biggest batteries in the world up in Newcastle as we speak. Uh, that's the Waratah big battery. Uh, Victoria's announced, they're, they're, I think they're starting um, maybe next month. So there's, they'll be under construction on the, a plant that's 30% bigger. But that shows how fast the global technology is moving. It's just staggering to watch. It's everything I hoped for five or 10 years ago, and now it's coming faster than uh, even I was expecting, so it's just beautiful to see. You know, you mentioned in
4: in your, your report too that the Queensland's awash with cash from its brilliantly progressive coal royalties deal.
2: It is, and that's why I say why I'd give Premier Mins a bit of a serve. He has um, New South Wales has announced it will increase our coal royalties al- towards what Queensland's done, but I think they've really screwed up on two points. One, they um, they took eighteen months to stuff around. And then when they announced it, the small primos, and by the way, we'll give them another nine months um, leave before it starts applying. So it only applies from July next year. Now, the horse has bolted. It's now right on the far hill, and it's about to go over the hill. So by the time July comes around, Mm. the coal price will be back to its long-term average, would Mm. be my forecast, (laughs) and therefore we won't get any, any major royalty or worse. And this is a highly likely probable outcome the coal mining companies are now seeing enormous cost inflation on their um, mining costs. Mm. Um, couldn't wish it on a better organisation uh, <laughs> sector, but the workers, the, the cost of, of exporting coal has gone up 50 60 70%. The price went up 10 times. Mm. But now that it's coming down, by the time this royalty hits, the coal companies will be losing money, and then they're going to whinge like mm. mad, saying, oh, New South Wales, you've put in a progressive coal royalty just as our our coal prices come down, whereas Queensland, Cameron Dick, the Treasurer of Queensland, has brought in a progressive coal royalty, which means that it's sharing the supernormal profits when they're being made. And by the way, supernormal profits for Queensland have been in the order for the industry, $30, $40, 50000000000 billion in the last year. And um, so that was 2022 and Queensland shared up to 40% of that. But when the coal price goes back to normal, they go back to getting a 7 or 8% royalty, whereas our coal companies will pay a flat 10 to 11% royalty whether they're making money or losing money. So you know, you can tell they will be whinging like mad when they're losing money and their royalties <laughs> have gone up. They won't even mention the fact they've just had three years of making a 100% return per annum. Mm. That'll be forgotten. That'll be banked in their Swiss tax havens and... Uh, So I really wish Premier Minns had had a little bit more courage and borrowed a little bit of spine from um, Cameron Dick up in Queensland and brought in a progressive royalty and brought it in immediately so that you could then have some money to actually help alleviate the cost of living crisis that um, the federal government, the Anthony Albanese government, is actually creating the framework to give the states the confidence to do that. Mm. So it's it's a team effort and it's just wonderful to see that we actually have governments both at the federal and state level all mucking in working together to actually solve the global climate crisis now we've got to do it fast enough but I think Treasurer Chalmers had a big investor roundtable three weeks ago with 20 of the biggest financial institutions in Australia which are some of the biggest financial institutions in the world and they came out and he put out a major press release saying, got oh, we're gonna go really hard on renewables because the finances industry is telling us to a man and a woman that if we actually um, create the right policy framework They will crowd in hundreds of billions of dollars to actually deliver the solutions we need. But the government's got to provide the framework. And I totally agree with that conclusion. So it was wonderful to see Chalmers, who actually this week also announced a massive improvement in the federal deficit. He's forecasting a $1 billion deficit. I reckon it'll be a surplus again. So. The ALP for all the crap from the Murdoch media that the ALP don't know how to manage the economy, but the LNP does. The LNP delivered the biggest deficits in Australian history for nine years in a row, and our charm is, I reckon, in six months' time we'll be seeing that he'll be delivering his second surplus out of two, two out of two, big green tick, mm. nine out of nine, big red cross for Freidenberg and the uh, the LNP. So. The crap about um, the ALP not being good fiscal managers. Well, Chalmers is absolutely riding high on the commodity cycle and on sensible government. He's been rebuilding capacity. He's been cutting all of the consultants that cost an arm and a leg and then yeah. steal and commit treason against our country. Like, yeah. um, And he's, he's bringing the public service back to actually have public servants work for Australia. What a radical
4: and, concept.
2: <laughs> uh, it, yeah, I think a couple of decades of privatisation, we've learnt that uh, that doesn't quite work for the average person in the street. So uh, now we've got to have Chalmers actually loosen the purse strings a bit and show a little more vision because he's shown clear financial sense. Huge tick from me. I'm a finance person, but now we've got to invest in the future. Mm-hmm.
4: And so, and skipping ahead, there's the, um, the, the COP, uh, as much as there was some, uh, some disappointment around it not taking the strong action that is really needed for the climate. It certainly has taken some steps forward, and uh, one of the headlines here in your report is 130 nations plus Australia sign up at COP for a three-time renewables by 2030. Now, that's getting a lot of people excited around the world, but it's, it's also about the uh, uh, tripling energy efficiency, or is it du- doubling energy efficiency over the same period?
2: Correct. So they're beautiful headlines, like a tripling of renewable energy. And then the first question, could we actually do it? Mm. i have to give China a shout out. China is doubling their manufacturing capacity of batteries, EVs and solar every two years. So two years ago, we said you couldn't triple solar and wind installs around the world in the next six years. Now it's entirely doable. Mm. It's also the economically irrational thing to do. And as you said, 130 countries have signed up, including Australia, to, you know, led by Minister Bowen. So I'll give him again a shout-out. If he does good things, I will shout them yeah, out. Yeah,
4: credit and where it's, it's due.
2: See. Yeah, exactly. And doubling energy efficiency as well. So that's where Senator McAllister has really been highlighting that in Australia. But Minister Bowen said that over at COP and that actually got in the final decision that we've got to double energy productivity, energy efficiency, hmm. In other words the best energy you can use is the have is the energy you don't need Mm. so that's having an insulated house so that when your air conditioner is on after an hour your house is cool and you can turn it off Mm. because you've actually got awnings and you've got uh, sealed windows and you've got double glazing and got insulation and so it actually dramatically reduces the the energy needs and so that's that's a really big one doubling energy efficiency and trebling the global installed base of renewables by 2030. That's a game changer if the world can deliver on that.
4: Mm. Might even
2: leave the place as a livable planet for our children.
4: Wouldn't that be nice?
0: (laughs) Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday.
1: With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people.
0: Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack.
1: We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library this Sunday.
0: Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free
1: Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.
3: And for Sydney listeners, the Palestine Action Group rally is on every Sunday at 1.30 in Hyde Park, near the Fountain. I've attended the rallies every week and they've been broadcast on 3CR each Saturday. And as I stand beside old women like me with tears rolling down their cheeks, I realize that action in solidarity with them is also climate action. If we can't have an expectation of life, free speech and a future, what hope can we have of arresting the momentum of climate change? from the institute for energy economics and financial analysis talking to shauna O'Shannessy on environmental as anything
4: china again now we've got uh, you know the, the, china's huge expansion of clean tech manufacturing is driving costs down dramatically and uh, making this tr- transition to renewables entirely economically sensible and viable you say so china 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 zooms ahead what are they really doing
2: Yeah, and I I say that deliberately, provocatively, because I know a lot of people will quite rightly throw another fact at us, which is that China is still building a new coal-fired power plant every week. They are. Mm. But as the International Energy Agency models, that China's coal fleet is really modern. In other words, it's the exact opposite of what we've got. Mm. And a modern coal plant designed by China, built by China, is the best technology in the world, it's designed to be flexible, so they're aiming to run these coal plants 20, 30, 40% of the time when it's not sunny, when it's not windy. In other words, they're using coal like we use gas peakers, right. and they're also building 10 gigs a year of pumped hydro storage, which is another form of long-duration storage to complement variable wind and solar, and then they're building a absolute truckload of battery energy systems, so... They're really designing the system around what resources they've got and what is needed to manage the reliability and affordability of the grid. And so you've got to put in context that they, they are building new coal-fired power plants, but they're not aiming to turn them on. And so if they're not turned on 70% of the time, they're not polluting for 70% of the time. They're mm. not the old coal clunkers that we got down in the Trobe Valley. Mm. Um, but China is building like 20 gigawatts of wind and solar every month this year. In three months, they build more wind and solar than the Australian energy system in total. The Australian electricity, we took 50 years to build our electricity system, and in three months, they're building more wind and solar than we've actually got. Now, that's a capacity figure, not a generation figure for the uh, energy wonks, but uh, it is showing how fast they're moving, right? They're five times bigger installs than in America in 2023. And their economy is smaller than the Americans, yet they're building five times as much. And by the way, that figure is double on what they're doing a year ago. And my forecast is they will probably increase at another 50% in the next two years. And that's what they need to do. If they tri- If they make it 30 gigs a month by 2030, they can treble their installed renewable energy system by 2030 when it's already the biggest in the world by a country mile. So I think we need to keep, China is the world leader in this area. They're an enormous country. They've got a huge population. They've got a huge pollution base, but they're also the world's number one in every zero emissions technology solution that we need. So mm. we, need, we need China. And so I'm cheering for them because the world can't decarbonize without China. And yet we're actually gonna rely on their manufacturing and te- technology know-how there's one Chinese company, one of my colleagues, Matt Pollard, went and visited two weeks ago, three weeks ago now. It spends $2 billion US a year on research and development in the battery space. They've got 18,000 research and development staff working on enhancing the quality of the batteries. That's all of the batteries you'll see in the electric vehicles, and they've got 18,000 workers. One company, $2 billion. I mean find R&D even mentioned in Chevron or Exxon or Woodside's annual report and no. I'll, I'll give you a thousand bucks because it's not there. They don't spend anything on R&D. They don't, they don't invest in their future no. and the Chinese companies invest just and un- it's a different way of thinking. They've got a different political system and in this regard it is actually working. Um, it's quite staggering how much mm. they spend on research and development and then they spend even more on deploying that new technology commercializing it and putting it in so they replace all of their solar factories almost every five years so that they're only producing the best latest technology I mean mm. it's it's just staggering it's like Japan was doing 30 or 40 years ago and now China is doing it
4: that is exciting, uh, and you know the prospects—you uh, know—very real for for that being able to turn around the crisis if uh, if they carry on like that. But uh, anyway, we'll have to see. As they as you say, they say a different political system. They make their five-year plans and they stick to them. So uh, you know. Anyway, we've also got uh, the the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., and you say there's echoes of it here in Australia.
2: And that's where we've been pushing the Treasurer Chalmers, Treasurer Chalmers, to really step up an Australian response to the Inflation Reduction Act. President Biden is kicking goals. He's put America back in the race. America's building four times as much factories in the last 12 months as they've built in any year in the last 50, like 400% faster construction of new capacity. So they're really saying, well, we don't want to be reliant on Chinese factories. We want to do it in our own country and have self-sufficiency or have at least alternative supply chains established so we don't just be left behind. And so there is the risk of a big sucking noise, which is the sucking of all of the brilliant capital in Australia, off to America Mm. because Biden's thrown a trillion bucks of subsidies on the table. And last I checked, a trillion dollars is a lot of money, particularly when it's U.S. dollars. And so our finances um, reminded Jim Chalmers that our borders, our capital borders are very, very porous and that they've got a fiduciary duty to invest where they can maximise the return and minimise the risk. So Australia does need a response, which is why I say, look, now that Chalmers has proven his economic credentials, like he's got an A+, plus, whereas Frydenberg got a D-, minus. Um, mm-hmm like Fronberg's the guy that when he announced the COVID thing, he, he got it wrong by sort of $60 billion. Mm-hmm. Um, Chalmers is now rolling in cash and paying down debt. Um, but what we need to do is invest in the future. So I'm pushing, and we, and my organisation has worked with a whole lot of other organisations, to say to the federal government, you've really got to start investing in the solutions the world needs. And we know a carbon price is toxic, but it's the obvious solution put a price on the problem and finance and business will find a way around it in the absence of doing the obvious least cost solution they're gonna have to do something else which means spending a bit of our money our taxpayers money and that's it's things like the capacity investment scheme underwrite and minimize the risk and then let them crowd in private capital in the hundreds of billions of dollars so our children will thank Chalmers for doing it when he does it he's promised to do it in May next year in the budget um, we're pushing him to go hard and fast because this is a massive investment, employment, and export opportunity. Oh, and by the way, it'll help save the planet. <laughs> oh, bonus. <laughs> yeah, just, just a little bonus. Australia can play a world-leading role on that. Mm-hmm. We, we, we play number one. I think you and I have talked about it. We're number one in the world in iron ore, 38% of the world's iron ore. We're number one in the world in coke and coal, 55% mm. of the world's coke and coal exports. We're number one in the world in lithium. 50% of the world. We don't play an also RAND role when it comes to the export market. No. And so that means we can play a world-leading role helping countries like China, Japan, Korea, India decarbonize their economy. We can help them. And when we're helping them, we're helping ourselves because we're building the industries of the future just like China's doing. And that's that's a big investment. And that is a once-in-a-generation opportunity for Chalmers to leave a massive... Positive economic legacy for our country. We've been a parasite on the world for for decades as the third largest fossil fuel exporter. Of the world. We're we're one of the drug pushers. We've got to become one of the solution providers at world scale. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Oh, Tim, look, we could talk all day. We're going to have to wrap it up soon, though, but I just wanted to touch quickly on another thing that uh, from this report which brought a smile to my face, and there are so many. Um, uh, Adani exposed history's worst corporate fraudster. What, what, give us a couple of minutes on that.
2: Yeah, I've been campaigning, and Mr Adani's not um, not on my Christmas list, and I'm certainly not on his, Um <laughs> Although he did offer to take me over to India and kiss and make up. And uh, that, in all honesty, they did actually offer. And then they've just announced the reason why they did it, it was a month ago. Um, I, I politely declined. Um, but they actually have done some of what they were offering to discuss with me. So they've announced this week So you're expecting me to dump on them. Okay, <laughs> the biggest fraud in world history, allegedly, yeah. but what they've announced this week is that they're going to invest $100 billion into decarbonising the Indian economy over the next decade. Now, $100 billion in anyone's terms is a very significant bet to help drive capital to solutions that the world needs. And we need, India is now one of the four or five largest economies in the world. It's growing the largest the fastest growing large economy in the world, it's growing at seven percent per annum. Right? China's growing at five. America's growing at two or three. They're growing at seven percent mm. GDP per annum. So what uh, uh, Gita Adani has announced this week is that five of his big subsidiaries will target net zero by 2050, um, which is 20 years ahead of what Prime Minister Modi has pledged for India as an emerging market. Now. Common but differentiated responsibilities. We and China and America and Europe caused the problem. The vast majority, of it, we've got to move first and to buy some time for emerging markets like India. Hmm. But And Prime Minister Modi's been sort of very dogged in pointing out common but differentiated responsibilities as a core principle of the Paris Agreement. But Adani, like Mikesh Ambani, the, the richest man in Asia, the, the founder of Reliance Industries, who's Adani's number one competitor, The two of them have both committed to decarbonise their entire... Sorry, their businesses, a majority of their businesses, um, decades ahead of the country pledge for India. So if Australia... If Bowen can convince America and Europe and China to pull forward our aspirations and go harder and the tripling of renewables globally by 2030 is exactly what we need, that pulls forward the decarbonisation... India is now positioning so that they can pull forward their net zero by 10, 20 or even 25 years. Now, that means we do bank a livable future for our children. So, much as I've been a a protagonist against Gautama Madani, now that he is one of the richest men in the world, he's starting to invest in solutions and we need him to go faster in the right direction and stop digging new coal mines. So, a bit like Australia, Bowen's pushing us in the right direction, but at the same time, we're still building new coal-fired power plants and new, mm-hmm. sorry, new coal mines. India is still building new coal mines and coal-fired power plants, and unfortunately, it's Gitar Madani doing that. But at the same time, he's now saying he's going to invest $100 bucks in decarbonisation solutions, which is building the grid, building the wind, building the solar, building, like he announced, they're, they're building... India's biggest copper refinery. When you're building a huge amount of new grid transmission, you need a lot of copper, mm. and he's building the refinery to supply the raw materials that India needs to decarbonise their economy. So... Sounds like all a all story
4: to, him, to keep an eye on. It sounds like something for, uh, for future uh, uh, analysis of the, uh, the results of those pledges, eh?
2: Absolutely. It's, it's good. It's what we have to see. The robber barons have to start turning and start contributing back to their economies. And Adani's starting to turn the ship. Now, early days, but they, they are starting. And that's what we, we need everyone to muck in. History's history. But we've got to actually deliver the solutions the world needs. And they need them in India. 1.4 billion people need those solutions.
5: 3CR is Radical Radio, and that means more than just alternative current affairs and political coverage. We're Radical because we're an independent media outlet, owned and operated by the community.
4: We're Radical because we give communities the control of their own shows, with their
5: own music, in their own languages. We're Radical because we provide a media platform for communities to build their own power to create social change. Become a subscriber and support Radical Radio. Call us on 03 9419 three double seven or subscribe online at forward slash subscribe
3: and now here's a little promotion from the climate Council of Australia they um, have made a tour of the world finding out where the best practice is in renewable energy
5: installations. The amount of renewable energy added globally grew by 50% in 2023. With carbon pollution also on the rise, switching from dirty fossil fuels to clean, reliable renewable energy and storage is the easiest and most effective solution to tackling the climate crisis. So, which countries are leading the charge? The United Kingdom is one of the top offshore wind energy producing countries in the world. With a plan to quadruple offshore wind generation by 2030, the UK is well on its way to a fossil fuel free power system by 2035. Sweden is on track to reach 100% renewable energy by 2040, smashing its target of 50% renewable energy eight years ahead of schedule. The United States is home to the largest lithium-ion battery energy storage system in the world. Moss Landing in California can store 750 megawatts of renewable energy. That's enough electricity to power about 15,000 average American homes continuously for a week. Costa Rica has produced 98% of its electricity from renewables for eight years in a row. In some years, they've been able to export excess power to countries in Central America's regional electricity market, which covers Guatemala, Nicaragua, Panama, Honduras, and El Salvador. Uruguay increased its wind power by 33% in five years. Once heavily reliant on imported fossil fuels, Uruguay generated 91% of their electricity from renewable sources in 2022. In some years, they generate so much renewable energy that they're able to export it to their neighbors, Argentina and Brazil.
3: Thank you for sticking with us on the Climate Action Show and a big call out to Babette and Adam who give me encouragement. The best way you can help us stay on air is by subscribing to Radio 3CR. Independent journalism, for example, Brought you last week on this show, a coal miner and a representative of a little community where 500 households are going totally electric. And then this week, a member of parliament and a top financial analyst. The other stations might talk to some of these people, but only we can give them the airspace to really make an impression. I subscribe to Community Radio, and it's mainly because I so value the Democracy Now! program at the moment on Gaza, and Radio Skid Row in Sydney. I also listened to the voices of West Papua and Solidarity Breakfast in Melbourne. They seem to me like voices from another whole bandwidth, where cynicism and apathy are never heard. So please phone 3CR tomorrow on 94198377 and sign up as a subscriber. Don't forget to mention the Climate Action Show. Thanks to our guests tonight, Abigail Boyd from the Greens Party in New South Wales Parliament, Sean O'Shaughnessy from Environmental As Anything podcast, and his guest, Tim Buckley from IEFA. My name is Vivian Langford. Goodbye and good luck.
2: This is cold. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's cold.
1: It's cold.
3: Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show.